Star Trek Discovery, Season 3, Episode 13, That Hope Is You, Part 2, is over. But we are just getting started here on Post Show Recaps. My name is Jessica Lees, and what a long, strange season it has been. Uh, it has been, we've had so many high highs, low lows, and complicated explanations for simple things, simple explanations for complicated things. And to help me break it all down this week is a man who's happy to take the loaf off for a few weeks anyway, Mr. Mike Bloom. Jess, when you talked about high highs and the lows, I just thought you were speaking about the complicated turbo shaft behind the scenes grid that we got to see during the climactic action scenes of this episode. Yeah, is it just me, Mike, or is Disco a lot bigger on the inside than it is on the outside? Is this uh, like one apparently of those house- so? It's like one of those House of Leaves situations. Or maybe it's just that, like, obviously Disco is a big ship, but otherwise, as opposed to, like, the Enterprise, which is full of, like, you know, habitations or greenhouses and holodecks, this is just, like, yeah, it's the vast majority of his turbo shafts and just the ability to have these little things move around like Monsters, Inc. doors. Yeah, it it was all very Monsters, Inc. And is the uh, preponderance of turbo shafts the reason that everybody has to double up on rooms? Yeah, maybe that's it. Like, oh, well, because we unfortunately there was a design flaw here. When we designed the ship, we thought it was initially just going to be one old thing that housed turbo shafts. Didn't realize that actually people had to live on this thing. So I'm afraid you're going to have to buddy up when it comes to bunking together. Unless you want to sleep in one of these many turbo shafts we have just milling about all the time. Well, that's what I was going to say. Could you opt to could you opt to put your bunk inside a turbo shaft? I feel like that would be very convenient. Like the commute is much easier now. Yeah, I mean, but the chances are that someone could easily commandeer it if they are particularly agile and, you know, take it over and take you someplace you don't want to go. It's almost like if you camped out, like, on the moving staircases in Hogwarts, right? Like, pretty reliable, but there's a good percent chance that you might end up not where you started by the time you wake up in the morning. Yeah, if if only there was some way to protect against that, Mike. Like if there was a way that we could, we could maybe guard against it somehow, like you could take out an insurance policy or something. Yeah, I mean, listen, also, uh, I think some insurance policies might have been taken out by those who got injured in the midst of fighting on said turbo lifts. I wonder if you could bundle that. I mean, hopefully, I think we're going to have to be bundling up something, including bundling up the parts of Zara that are left over after he took a spill down the turbo shaft lift. Yeah, I'm afraid no insurance policy is going to save him at this point. but. We are much luckier than that, Mike, because I want to take a minute before we start talking about all the events of the episode. I want to take a moment and thank our sponsors. And those are our friends over at Geico. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. But you know what's easy? Bundling policies with Geico. Geico makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. Or I guess if you live in a turbo shaft, that's both already. So it's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to Geico.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. Well, this finale and getting rid of Osira was far from Geico easy, Jess, but it's accomplished. Anything can be accomplished with the power of positive thinking and maybe a little bit of insurance. It's true. It Although, in the end, when they finally did take her out, it felt very, it felt very Geico easy once they got to the point. 
Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is now it's become very clear that this final episode and we spoke about this last week. This was clearly a three part finale. Really, it was really that hope is you parts two, three and four. And that being said, I think, unfortunately, they finished on the weakest of the three episodes. I mean, there was still a lot of good stuff to talk about. But I I feel like after really exposing so much of Osira last week, to have her sort of just like be back in mustache twirling mode for the entirety of the episode, you can understand why she defaulted back into that from a character psychological perspective. But to have her go out without really seeing any of those flaws that or, you know, uh, intricacies that we saw in the previous episode was a little lame. You know, if you're just hopping into Star Trek Disco for the season finale uh, without watching the previous two episodes, you're essentially going to miss out on the entirety of her characterization. Yeah, it's almost like last episode didn't even count. Like she didn't have a plan after all. And she was just in it to be evil and have power, which, you know, that is a character motivation for many, many people. Unfortunately, too many of them in this world, Mike, but it really felt like she like, did she really even have all that stuff mapped out? Like, was she really ready to sign a treaty and um, consolidate her resources or was it all just a big ruse and she knew it was they were going to reject it so she didn't actually have to do the assignment? Yeah, so I was intrigued as to, you know, obviously she was a little blind with the rage after everything broke down with the Federation. And it seemed like her plan was whether to get the information willingly out of book or to torture it out of him. Like she was going to go back to that dilithium planet. She was going to, I guess, keep disco and do what we initially thought she was going to do when she took the ship which was to like use its spore drive to hop around and continue committing nefarious deeds uh so it is, it is sort of weird sort of like circling back around to that and the larger question because obviously there's a lot of questions going on as we enter season four is you know if this was the real deal all her proselytizing last episode about like pushing through anti-slavery legislation and like wanting to seek legitimate negotiations with the Federation. You know, now that she's gone, the Emerald Chain isn't going away, in my opinion. I guess my assumption is that she was like the de facto leader of it, but I don't think this is going to lead to the complete collapse of it. And so I do wonder, like, how much does the rest of the Emerald Chain agree or disagree with what Osira was talking about in the last episode? I feel like it. people like that, it's kind of like playing whack-a-mole. I think you you exterminate one and another one is going to immediately pop up. Yeah, which is, a, I mean, it's, it's also something for the series as well, right? Like, if they're looking for a big bad of the season or for a mini arc, now they can be like, oh, and there's another person who has stepped into, you know, the chair. It's like, oh, you know, you got rid of Gold Ducat, but, uh, you know, how's here's Dinar in his place, and he might be much worse. And so I could very much see now the next, at least next season, if not several seasons, just the Federation continually having to deal with the Emerald Chain as a thorn in their side with just different people at the heads of it. Yeah, that that feels right to me. And because it's a huge organization too. Like it's not just one person out there running a whole bunch of stuff. You got to have you got to delegate that. You can't do it all on your own. Yeah, though my assumptions, I wonder so if Osira was the leader of the Emerald Chain, was the Viridian which was now handily destroyed, was that like the flagship? You know, was that like the the Karen uh to the mirror <laughs> universe of the Emerald Chain? I mean, I I assume so. 
it it almost feels like that horror movie trope of if you take out the queen, you kill the whole hive. Right, exactly. Yeah, so that's the thing, is that, like, you would think that initially, but but I do wonder if now we're going to be facing the sequel, sort of like the end of Godzilla in 1998, when it was like, oh my god, he actually had babies in the in in, uh, in Madison Square Garden, and so maybe there'll be a sequel that'll come out that'll focus on the babies. Yeah, there is that. Uh, it really... Also, Mike, you're the only person I know that's seen Godzilla 1998. I saw it in theaters, too. I have, uh, I wouldn't say fond memories of it, but certainly memories of it. Oh my god, Mike, how old were you? Isn't that movie rated PG-13? I mean, I was nine. I was with my parents. It was fine. I, I had Hank Azaria in it, and I was a big Simpsons fan at the time, so that's all I really concentrated on with it. I, I'm just picturing, like, nine-year-old Mike is a super fan of somebody that does a voice on a cartoon show, and so he goes to see a movie based on that. I'm a loyal fan through and through, Jess. You're a completist. I, I, want, I want to support Hank Azaria's live action work, and I was one of only a few people to do so. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I enjoyed him in the birdcage. Yes, yeah, so, um, yeah, Agador Spartacus is probably like one of his main two live action roles. Uh, unfortunately, I think his role as like random cameraman from Godzilla 1998, <laughs> he will not, will not be on his IMDb for anytime soon. Yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna guess not, but I, I I'm glad that you appreciated it anyway. Yeah, at least it, it it allowed me to make this reference here as to the the uh the end dot 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 question mark of it all that I'm sure is to come with the Emerald Chain uh going into season four and beyond. Or maybe it's another maybe it's another one of those tropes of like oh you thought the Emerald Chain was bad, but this organization has been pulling the Emerald Chain strings the entire time. Osira was mere child's play compared to this person. I mean, come on, isn't that Disco's M.O.? Like, oh, you saved the entire universe, but look, now you have to save the entire universe plus plus. Well, yeah, you say that, but again, this this season took a, a deviation from that. I will say, I feel like the actual death of Osira, I don't know, I'm, I'm of a couple of minds of it, because like, you know, it was cool to see that it was Michael to do it, right? For many reasons, this episode hammered home how like Michael Burnham is Star Trek Discovery, at the same time, after all that, for her to essentially get, like, shot through the head after attempting to drown Michael in a quagmire of programmable matter was a little like, oh, okay. Uh, I, I was expecting her to, like, tumble down a turbo, a turbo lift shaft a la Zara as well, you know, to have a big, like, climactic Hans Gruber-esque death to go back to the diehard comparisons. Yeah, or even one of those deaths where you're not sure it's a death. Mm -hmm. Or like you thought she was dead and then she like comes and, you know, takes her revenge at the end and somebody suffers as a result. Yeah, exactly. Um, or, you know, she might be able to come back at some point. We, you know, we've done that enough times. Yeah, that's true. Which again, like we don't necessarily need to do that. And I guess, you know, maybe we'll have other people to deepen as well. But here goes Osira, you know, she, her and Michael Burnham squared off a bunch. Uh, she got a nice slap in on Michael, but Michael ends up getting the last shot here. Is she like, good on Michael for being able to, I'm assuming her vision was obscured, but she's able to net like two or three headshots directly on Osira while she is ensconced in all this stuff. Yeah. Okay, Mike, we need to talk about the stuff because I'm not clear on what the stuff is, I think. Mm -hmm. And we had a couple of questions about this, actually, because you also see Gray walking through stuff. And I don't know if that's the same stuff. Like, is this dilithium or is it the actual, like, programmable matter stuff? Because it did look like one of those toys that you get on your desk at work. Yes. Where you put your hands through. 
And it could just be like maybe disco has a giant one of those. <laughs> yeah, like just well, listen, they need stress relievers. I think after the whole Saru like uh, group movie night thing, he's like, let's add more stuff here. Let's put stress balls and pin cushions in there or, or whatever they're called. I I don't know. I'm I'm conditioned to believe it's not dilithium because essentially Michael went to the data core, basically went to like the big reset button for discovery to take back control of the computer system. I don't know why dilithium would exist outside of the warp core. And so that that's why I don't necessarily think it's dilithium and programmable matter can just have so many uses everywhere that I would not be surprised if it was just hanging out in the corner of the data core for some reason. Like you just keep some in the corner of the data core room and scoop it out if you need it. Yeah, exactly. It's sort of just like, well, this is loose, you know, programmable matter that if you're uh, if you need to create a model really quick, just like grab a handful, sculpt something, then you're on your way to your presentation. Yeah, like just like put some in a bucket and take it to where you're going and make a desk out of it. Yeah, exactly. You know, if, if you're running low on supplies, well, just head down to the data core. It's almost like a storage room in that capacity in just that everything can be stored here because anything can be created out of it. Wow, that's that's so metaphysical, Mike. But I feel like that's not where you want to keep your matter is right next to the most unstable thing on the ship. Well, we don't know exactly with the um with the refurbishments that happen. That's another thing as well, as I do wonder how like that voluminous turbo lift shaft, I know I keep going back to it, but like is that a TOS era disco thing, or did that come up with the big remodel? of discovery because like when you watch TNG for example i remember a very famous episode disaster which has Jean-Luc Picard and a bunch of kids climbing their way out of a broken turbo lift and they're climbing up what looks like an outright elevator shaft so i'm confused as to like when in star trek history did they decide like let's carve out a big ass p- part of a ship and just have all of these turbo lifts as little boxes that move around up down and all around I have to imagine that this is part of the um, refurbishment that they got. Like, this has to be 31st century technology. Uh, it does seem like a really inefficient use of space. Um, yeah. I I don't love that. I feel like they really could have. They really, if that's all this, if they have that much space, they don't have to have a multi-purpose room anymore. Just make that a bar. Yeah, that's very true, actually. You know what? Maybe they should just fill that room with programmable matter. Maybe it can be like the room of requirement where you just like hold your hand up to it and the programmable matter fills the room and becomes what you want it to be. I mean, that's a, that's essentially what it is, Mike. Yeah. Like, you, you just point at it and you're like, OK, bar and it makes a bar. Yeah. So I don't know, m- maybe uh, unless this was another thing that Pike objected to and therefore Starfleet was like, all right, from here on out. No more big ass turbo turbo lift rooms. We're just going to keep it one skinny shaft at a time. And so the rest of the the series were screwed over because of it. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like all of the subsequent series. I think they just that's what they have because it's the most efficient way to get where they're going. And this seems like they are they're able to play with metaphysics itself. And so they have this giant room in the middle of the ship that has turbo lifts that can go up, down, and sideways like Willy Wonka designed the thing. Another thing I'm intrigued with with the schematics of Disco, because I believe it was a point made that, okay, now the nacelles are detached. That's the cool thing to do. It's like getting your ear pierced in the 32nd century. And then obviously now you have the whole like semi-suicide mission where Owo has to go plant the bomb in the nacelle. Does it like come closer when the ship is in warp? Or something like how was she able to actually get over to the nacelle proper to put the bomb in? 
Well, I think, doesn't it sort of, it can detach, but is it always detached? Yeah, that's just what I, I wonder if maybe when it starts to warp, as Michael Burham says, when they start to let's fly, maybe the nacelles like attach for aerodynamic purposes. Yeah, you would think you'd want to keep that all together. Yeah, or I'm exactly. thinking about um, in like executive decision when they have the when they refuel the plane in midair and then they drop a bunch of agents like through the chute into the plane. Mm. That it could be one of those things like you just have like a tube and you yeah, can like I have the tube come out. I don't know. When I heard they were going to the nacelle, it gave me flashbacks to like the second disco episode ever when Michael Burnham had to like do that jump from her brig cell back onto the ship uh, that I was <laughs> like, oh, man, they're going to have to like really make a leap of faith there. Uh, though, you know, it turns out that everyone's OK at the end of the day. De- Jess, you and I spent a good portion of time talking about like, OK, one of these crew members has to bite the dust in the finale. It's got to happen. Uh, evidently no uh osira yes r.i.p zara yes r.i.p but no crew members uh, everyone ends up surviving into season four of discovery here surprisingly so mike are you weirdly disappointed by this because i kind of am it was well i think i am only disappointed in that like it really did seem like the owo of it all was kind of served up to us on a silver platter of like okay we're finding out more about her. It's that personal story bump. She's the only one who can do this. She puts the bomb in, but passes out like this had all the makings of she's going to be a Cornwall here. She's going to sacrifice herself and blow up to save <laughs> the crew and help the plan here. And it doesn't end up happening. And I, I was just a little confused about that. I mean, I guess it's good that hopefully we'll find out more about her in the ways that we did Detmer this season. But it, it seemed just like a rather big tease that all this got set up for like, oh, don't worry, the dot was around. and was able to pull her out just in time. It did seem like a pretty big tease. And it was also like, I I didn't feel like it was earned anyway. I felt like, well, we've seen a little bit of OO sometimes like she, she's had, she had one other episode where she got to be on the away team and that was yeah. pretty cool. She talked about her life before Starfleet. And then we haven't seen her much. Like she's around. She's yeah. with the, the, you know, the bridge crew is kind of like, it's like a single character. Yeah, exactly. With like Detmer sort of like sticking out as if it's stigil limb a bit. And, uh, if anything, this season, O was sort of like the assist to that limb, just sort of being like Detmer's best friend, assumingly, and constantly talking through the yips that she was undergoing. Yeah. And she, you know, she did fine with that, but I don't think, like, I wish, and this is maybe more of a classic Trek thing. I wish we would have B stories that involved these people. Like, we get it peripherally and occasionally like Detmer has had it a couple of times, but the lack of any kind of episodic nature of the show, like it's a very arc driven show now. So we don't get to have these little stop downs where you can flesh out a character and have them go on an adventure by themselves because all of the adventures now serve the bigger purpose. So you don't have a chance to stop and give like, Reese a chance to go um like I don't know go into the holodeck and fix Badgie or something like that mm-hmm. well I wonder if that is a bit of a consequence of the shorter episode order right when you're used to like typical 26 mm. episodes like we got an older Trek series they had to fill time so they're like great uh we'll write an episode where Quark and Odo got get stranded on a planet together <laughs> and have to work together to survive yep. 
or like, hey, let's let's create this character called Barkley, speaking of the holodeck, and just like give him a few episodes to do stuff. You're almost like forced to mire yourself in character things sometimes. And I really do think like we had a couple of moments here and there. I think thinking particularly of the forget me not episode when the entire B plot was in that vein, Jess, of the whole let's cheer the crew up argument. But yeah, outside of that, you know, these people have to be involved with the core action of the episode in order to really get any screen time outside of just giving statuses. And that is tough to come by. I think another consequence, and they did a better job this season of it by eschewing a few, you know, leftover characters, is just there's so many people on this show. You know, when we get the lines of people regarding the new captain in the final scene of this, that's like 12, 13, 14 named characters <laughs> that we have that is pretty ridiculous by even star trek standards so i think it's it's just a it's a problem that will not go away unless i don't know maybe they'll do an like a, a version of the office with what they did back then and did like special webisodes or short treks focusing on adventures of the bridge crew specifically so that we get something there at least because otherwise I think given what usually happens around like the main six or seven characters, it's going to be tough to squeeze them in. And therefore, to your point, when they die, either we don't really care or like Arium, they're going to backload a bunch of exposition to us right before they do so. And we're going to feel a little rushed into it. I think I think you've I think you've nailed it, Mike. I think the thing they need to do is give them short treks, like give them something extra that. You don't necessarily like it's it's extra credit. You can watch it if you want. And then we feel just that much more invested in them. So they have the room to use them the way they used OO on the, the away mission. Like you can send one of them. It's like and it's not like the olden days when it would be two characters that are named and um, mm-hmm. the one that's going to die. So, you know, give them something like have two of them have their own little adventure in a short trek. And then when we see them again, we'll remember, but you don't necessarily need to know who they are. You can just sort of feel it if you want to feel it. Right. It sort of is like the extended universe of Star Trek. Of I know there are actual novels that play into the extended universe, but more so, hey, this is something if you're into it and it'll help you get to know these characters more because Lord knows the main show might not give us stuff outside of this like temporary Oh, what was a hero? Wait, she might be dead. No, she's not moment. Yeah. And and it's like, you can't really, you haven't had enough time with Owo to really feel that. Yeah. And, I, then and, and unfortunately, I think this episode was kind of full of those fake outs, right? Like between that and of course the, oh my God, did Michael's risky plan pay off? The Ridian exploded. Is Disco really gone? Oh, wait, they're not. Yeah, that was, that was kind of cheap as well. And I, and I knew that they weren't going to explode Disco. We already know that. So I don't know why we want to pretend that it might have happened. Well, speaking of that, I guess let, let's talk about a bigger development. And I can't remember, uh, I'll hopefully find this person as we're sort of talking through this, who very brilliantly called this out to us on Twitter, you know, at the I very beginning. Of, oh, perfect. Have, read, read it out, Jess. All right. So we got to give a big shout out to Jared Mounts because uh, mm. he tweeted at us. He said, first thing he says, um, the other day on on January 7th, that's uh, day before yesterday, he says, it may have taken all season, but now I can say hashtag called it. And then he brings to our attention a tweet that he made on October 16th. And he says two thoughts on the Star Trek Discovery premiere. One, in a dilithium starved universe, a starship with a non-dilithium drive might be useful. If I had a bell, I'd ding it there, but he's not done. And two, if you have a spore drive, 
book seems like an interesting guy to have on board. Are you psychic, Jared Mounts? That's amazing. Yeah. Have you been, uh, have you been given your own sort of like, uh, auxiliary implants that allow you to see into the future? Are you a Q? Cause damn, that is just perfect. Cause outside of Jared, I don't know if anybody nor any of us just thought, oh yeah, book is going to be the natural substitute stamets here. I, I think the logic is still a little wonky, but man, way to shoot your shot, dude. I love it. Yeah, he did not throw away his shot there. Um, it was it was pretty amazing, and it makes sense now that I've seen it on screen. Although in the moment, I will say I thought it was a little Mary Sueish. Mm-hmm, Honestly, we and we've had a lot of that. We're going to get into that later when we talk about Adira, but it really felt like, oh, this guy is super hot and he has a cat and he has a ship and he knows a lot about the universe and he has access to technology that even the Emerald Chain doesn't. Oh, yeah. And also he can drive the spore drive better than Stamets. Yeah, well, that's the thing as well as I guess maybe we'll see some competition. I mean, poor Stamets is not left in a great standing by the end of this season, but now he has someone else to contend with. I'm a little confused on the logic still because so Aurelio, uh, who I'm assuming is now sort of, I guess, with the Federation. So yay for more non-loafed Kenneth Mitchell (laughs) was talking, saying like, well, I think books empathic tendencies allows him to like, you know, really essentially make a connection with the tardigrade DNA. But my I thought that it was the tardigrade DNA is not like free floating in the spore cage. I thought it was that Stamets injected himself with the tardigrade DNA, and he uses that to connect to the spores. I think he does, but I think it is um, like the tardigrade DNA is what enables him to connect with the spores. So I don't think it's, I don't think book is connecting with the tardigrade of it all. I think he is actually directly speaking to the spores. Oh, interesting. So, I mean, yeah, he was able to talk to like that water plant in the first episode, right? So I can imagine like living organisms like a spore is probably not too far off that path. Yeah. I mean, it, it really felt like he I, he can talk to plants. And I, yeah. I assume animals, too. Like, that's why he is closer to his cat than most people are close to their pets, because he and the cat can have deep conversations. I don't know. I know a lot of pet owners, just that would drop kick a man out of an elevator shaft uh, if they insulted their pet. I mean, he certainly spoke to pet owners everywhere with that moment. Yeah, absolutely. It's just like, hey, don't get between a person and their pet. They will do bad things to you, even hopped up on a lot of adrenaline. Yep, she's a queen. And yeah, so I mean, it's a big moment for Buck. Obviously, I think the last few episodes, he and the writers were sort of just waiting for him to do something. And it looks like he's got something to do now. It is interesting in the final scene, which characters, a.k.a. Adira have apparently been inducted into Starfleet and which characters, a.k.a. Book, have not. So I wonder if Book's obviously going to hang around considering that he's sort of uh, betting the captain right now. But the fact that he's still not in Starfleet, I wonder if that means, like, could he still be that undercover guy who's able to go on missions and, you know, uh, do stuff that the Federation can't do? Yeah, I think keeping him out of Starfleet allows him to do that, but... It's also, it's not weird because he's just sort of like, he's like the Keiko O'Brien of the series. He's probably got things they can give him to do on the ship, but you don't necessarily have to be in Starfleet to be on the ship. Yeah, but that being said, though, I'm still confused about Adira. Because Adira, when we met her, when we met them, was part of the United Earth Defense 
Foundation, which is not Starfleet. I don't think it's Starfleet sanctioned, considering it, it came about after Starfleet, you know, left Earth. And now it's just like, ah, close enough. Why don't you get in on your uniform? Well, I think Adira has proved their worth. And they probably can't go back to the other thing now because they have bolted. And even if they could, they probably wouldn't want to. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. It's I, I think it's just an interesting... Uh, I don't know. I guess I'm used to characters being like, oh, you want to be a part of Starfleet? Nog, hey, why don't you go to the Academy to have Adira sort of get like transposed over? I know things are more fast and loose in the 32, uh, 3100s when they are also looking for people. It also could have been the thing that off screen, maybe Book was given the same option and chose not to take the gray uniform. I would guess that's probably what happened. And I would also imagine, you know, you didn't have to necessarily go to the Academy to be in Starfleet. You went to the academy if you were going to train to be an officer it's like you can join you can join the navy or you can go to west point but you don't have to go to west point to be in the navy right so like miles o'brien is an enlisted man who didn't go to starfleet academy um it's i think it's similar to that and it's also adira can probably test out of a lot of the starfleet academy exams because they were once a pretty high-ranking admiral Mm-hmm. And they oh, that also is, that is true as well. Actually, yeah. I did not think about the fact that yeah, Senatol was an admiral, so maybe yeah. they're able to fast track them because it's just like, well, you technically have been through the program before, not just not you, you, but a version of you has. Yeah, I would guess you can probably give Adira a test and tell them, okay, this is the final exam that you get from like officer training 401 this is the colloquium test uh, let me know how you do on it and if they ace it they don't have to take the class again yeah i like that i mean maybe i i love your explanation for that admittedly maybe some more t- you know description of that might have been helpful but i also understand like the the last image was really really cool and i could understand if they wanted to spend less time on that especially because you know we got we got some adira stuff in these in this last episode surprisingly not a fair amount of adira in the last three episodes considering how much they were at the forefront of the first part of the season but that happens on disco sometimes i mean it's quality over quantity mike but i think you are right that they're not gonna put people through their paces to get them into starfleet now that they're in a building phase so i would guess I would guess there's some leeway there as well. And I think we'll get to that when we talk about that final scene, but we should talk about the Adira of it all because I think what we did get of Adira was very important. And I also need to kick this off by giving you mad props, Mike, because we had this conversation last week. You said it's possible that Gray shows up in a more corporeal sense and that Gray is the only one who can access certain parts of Sukal's world because of the radiation and Gray not actually being his own person. And you were absolutely right. That's exactly what happened. Yeah, I, I was I was even a little surprised that I was right in that regard. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad it happened, at least so we could have this moment of like, you know, Culver can be like, oh, yeah, you know, technically you you are sort of like my pseudo son. So it's nice to finally meet you. And now it seems like we've been kicked off into one of a few plots going into season four of however the hell they're going to get Gray to essentially come back from the dead at this point, which, look, it's been done before. 
Uh, if you had ended season one by telling me, oh, yeah, Hugh Colbert is going to come back via, you know, his uh, his, you know, spirit sort of ending up in the mycelial network, I would not have believed you. So I'm sure there's going to be a way for it to happen. And it was nice to have Gray play a small part here, even though it did amount to only like a couple of scenes uh, in, you know, the episode. Ultimately, I will say also, Ian Alexander looks good as a Vulcan as well. He has a very like nice pointed face for that. Yeah, he can definitely pull off the ears. Um, I I do have a question for you, Mike, and maybe you can answer this or maybe you can't. What the hell is Adira supposed to be? I have no clue, Jess. I scoured as much as I could to try to because the issue as well, right, is that with modern Trek, you know, the Klingons of modern Trek do not look like the Klingons of past Trek. So it's not like I can even say, oh, yeah, this is clearly referring to this previous character. I cannot for the life of me figure out what race Adira is supposed to be. Maybe it's from a race that we haven't met yet that exists in the 3100s. Yeah, or maybe it's just like um, a 16-year-old got access to some kind of avatar builder and uh, chose the look. Because this really... I I was sure that Adira was playing some like made-up race that somebody in an ORG was was doing back in the days when I did such things. Okay, so the one thing I can think of right now, just doing it one more scour, is that, speaking of dilithium, the Zahians, of which, again, we only know one from Poe, from the short mm. track and from season two. If you look at Poe, Poe has sort of like, like you said, sort of like the half-assed uh, avatar makeup, where it's just like blue eyeshadow, blue eyebrows, and then black eyes. I think that's what they're supposed to be. Okay. That that would make some sense. And but it's also I still don't understand the game that this hollow thing plays. Um because they really everybody who has come down to that ship is a race that is easily identifiable by Sukal thanks to his extensive hollow training. So why do we need to make a Kelpian human when we have two humans there? And why do we need also a Zahian? Because we have Michael Burnham now looks like a Trill, and this is also a human. I, I feel like make them all look human if they if all we're doing is giving Doug Jones a break from the loaf. Yeah, that's the thing is I can understand the Saru side of things, right? Like it would be like, okay, we're immediately screening for Kelpians. It would be very traumatizing for him to see another Kelpian because of what happened. Let's change you into human. But like you said, it's not like humans were not in this hollow program. You know, it's not like he had an outright fear of humanity. It was more so that I think this idea of another Kelpian, a corporeal Kelpian at that sort of being in the program might spook him a little bit. I mean, it was an opportunity to at least play around with the makeup a bit, even if the logic of the program was a little wonky. We can also blame the program because it was on the fritz. You know, it was succumbing mm. to hundreds of years of radiation. So maybe it was not doing the best job of matching things up. Yeah, that's true. It it could be just that it's it's putting some kind of hollow effect on you, but it's not supposed to be random. Well, Jess, I want to speak about Saru and what's to come for him. But first, let's take a quick break and hear from some more of our sponsors yeah i i think i want to know what your theory is on this mike because i i wonder why we are getting less saru next season and i have some i have some theories that are in the universe and some theories that are not so yeah so first off i was very surprised but very happy 
about this, I mean, we're going to get to, you know, the whole Michael Burnham becoming captain revelation at the end of it, which I was happy about for a number of reasons. So first, it helps us get to that, which I was happy about. And I think, you know, for Saru, I think we maybe even underestimated him seeing other Kelpians in this world and what it meant to him. Because, like, even though he did technically go back to Kaminar last season, this is essentially a world and a people that he basically abandoned for good for the vast majority of his life. And I think that he, you know, in a universe where so many of these characters are now looking for, like, okay, this is our new home where we don't know anybody, Sru has sort of, like, been given the opportunity to create a connection with people and a place that does feel like home to him. And as someone who lived the opposite for so long, I can absolutely understand why he ends up doing what he does. It is, ironically enough, very human of him to be like, I need to take a leave of absence, especially because he has been one of the most devoted people to the cause by the book People to Starfleet. That I love that this season for Saru was about like, just when he finally got what he wanted to become captain... I wonder if he sort of asked himself, like, okay, now what? And then he realized that maybe his satisfaction didn't come from giving orders in the captain's chair, but actually connecting back to the people that he was, you know, tilling seaweed with in the first place. So I love ending there as well, because, again, I I think it's a lot of meaning for Saru, and it's a big deviation in character, and it shows growth, which is, of course, we want our characters to show growth, especially over the course of a season. That being said, I don't think he's completely out of Starfleet, And my leading theory here, Jess, is I think we're going to get Admiral Saru next season. I like that a lot, Mike. Um, If I can, if I can bust down the fourth wall for a second, I wonder if we are, because we are still facing down a world where everybody's going to have to limit their contact with others and uh, wear masks a lot of the time and the hoops you have to jump through to get a season of Star Trek made in this brave new world. I wonder if they just want to like cool it on the loaf for a little while because that's Mm -hmm. such a complicated thing. And I wonder it's possible that they even gave Doug Jones the loaf break because they wanted to minimize the amount of time that everybody had to sit in makeup chairs and have different makeup artists working on them. Yeah, that's, that's a real that's a really interesting theory. Yeah, that I think minimizing on the manpower as well if you want to have less people on set too, that probably means maybe bringing in fewer makeup artists and obviously they're really concentrated on some of the most detailed work with Saru. Mhm. And if you have if you have another Kelpian who's a central character, um you need the you need the Kelpian makeup people to do Sukal and you either have to double the you have to double the Kelpian makeup people, or you can just have Saru's team work on Sukal and have Saru look like Doug Jones for a little while. Yeah, I mean, that that could be interesting as well. I mean, I think that I think it's also a thing of like, I'm maybe Saru, at least from my perspective, Saru might be done traveling right now. You know, again, mm-hmm. I, I feel like maybe I am projecting a lot into him, but I wonder if right now he's just like, Hey, you know what? It's nice to go back home and not have to hop from planet to planet. It'd be nice if I could hunker down in one location for a while. And maybe he's done enough good that, as we found out in the last episode, uh, it's not necessarily Vance that seems to be running the entire ship. It seems like there is some sort of hierarchical organization that maybe Saru can be an admiral alongside Vance. Or hell, if they can't get Oded Fair for whatever reason, maybe taking Vance's place 
for the season. And he is now the person that Michael refers into for all these missions. That would be fun. He could be the chief. Like, yeah, he could be Carmen Sandiego's chief. Um, and he also, I think another thing we're not touching on yet, Mike, is the fact that Saru basically upended his entire people's culture last season when mm-hmm. it turns out that you don't have to go get eaten by a predator species when you go through Kelpian puberty. He's like, well, what if we just shed our ganglia and keep on going? Like that just the mythology of Kaminar at that point is just completely chucked out the window. Yeah. And he that's why he was so excited to see an elder and interact with an elder in this hollow program because there weren't any elders back in his day and he wants to see what they have created like mike can you imagine what somebody from the year like 1021 would have to catch up on if they showed up here yeah exactly it's, it's like, well especially if it was like you know hey we live in this time where like we would ritualistically sacrifice people at the age of 21 it's like hey uh, look at what happens when people can live past that age and see what they can do. It's got to be a whole new universe out there. And so, like you said, he really is exploring those opportunities, not only to satiate a part of his individuality, but also just to like answer that question of what does Kaminar look like now? That being said, I hope that he's still a part of Starfleet because mm-hmm. I don't think I would like if it was like, okay, we have this stuff going on with Michael Burnham and the Discovery crew. And then meanwhile, on Kaminar, Saru does this. That feels a little too separate for me. I still like the umbrella of Starfleet personally. Maybe, I guess, a good marriage of that would be like make Saru an ambassador to Kaminar, mm-hmm. right? Like we have many ambassadors. We saw a few at the end of this with the return of, uh, you know, with the return of the Trill ambassador, with the return of the president of Navarre. So maybe that could happen if we want to explore more of Kaminar. Michelle Paradise also said in the ready room that Saru will be back for season four. But my big prediction, Jess, is I do not think he's aboard Discovery in season four. I I would co-sign that prediction, Mike. I think I think I, I do think that we have we are done with Kaminar for the time being. I think we've closed the book on Sukal. They've gone there. They've gone to the planet and Saru's going to help him get settled in, but we're not going to get an episode of him getting him settled in. We're going to get Saru taking care of business off camera and then showing up in whatever capacity, like going to work as attache to Admiral Fridge or whatever he ends up doing. Uh, I think, I think we probably don't get to know what else he does. I think so, it's, he jumps right back into Starfleet. Speaking of Sakal, I guess we should talk about the resolution of that. Because, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm going to ping-pong it right back to you, Jess. You were right as, as much as I know Fitzy tried valiantly to to disprove what we had thought, what you had predicted two episodes ago, was indeed verified. Sukal is the singular cause of the burn. And, you know, Saru, and with a last-second assist from Colbert, is able to sort of talk him off the ledge, get him to break down the hollow environment and escape just in time. But now that it has officially played out, I know you're not a fan of the trope. What are your thoughts on it? You know, did did it mire the ending of this season for you, considering the revelation that it was indeed from one person's emotional outburst due to their family dying? I kind of hate it. I I hate it a lot. Um, To have Sukal be the Tommy Westfall of the Star Trek universe. (laughs) 
really yeah, yeah, I mean, he, he said, well, except in this case, he was living inside the snow globe. Yeah, he, he's the one inside the snow globe. and But I do find it kind of cheap. And it really, it after we've had so many seasons of big things happening with huge high stakes caused by even bigger things to have this be something so small and insular. It's, it's a, it's an interesting departure and I see where they were trying to go with it, but it's also um, the entire way of life as we know it ceased to be because a kid lost his mommy. And yeah. as a parent, as a parent, this was really hard to watch. Mm-hmm. And especially the note that, that she has for whoever finds him, like take him back to his grandpa and let him go floating in the river. I'm like, oh, geez, that's uh, someone's chopping onions in here. That's really upsetting. Yeah, like, look, yeah, and the whole like Mufasa thing, right? Of like, look up at the two suns and you'll have the brightest sun and you'll know that those are your parents looking down on you. It was, it was very emotional to watch. And so to your point, thematically, I actually really like it because I actually go forward to Michael's final narration of the season here when she talks about like, you know, the f- this future began with disconnection, but connection, the need to connect is at our core as sentient beings. And, you know, I do find it fitting that this whole disconnecting event, this cataclysm came from like this one being losing out on his connection as well. Like that a disconnect essentially breeded disconnect. So I like that in terms of the theming of how connection is so important and can still be possible even in the darkest of times. But I feel like from an execution perspective, yeah, it, it's just very odd to be like, hey, you're the burn, essentially, right? Like, you're <laughs> the burn, you're the burn person. Uh, yeah. Maybe it was, it was also a little disquieting because it was the first thing that first big twist of the season that like was not linked to Michael Burnham somehow, which is very yeah. surprising. I know from the very beginning, we're like, oh, burn, burn ham. Of course, it's a thing. But no, it was it was more so that, you know, the names just happened to be shared. I mean, I guess another larger question, and maybe this will also inform my opinions moving forward is will Sukal appear in a larger capacity in season four or is he sort of done here and are his destabilizing powers his subspace communication powers done here well they said as soon as we get him away from the ship he's not gonna be dangerous anymore so i'm gonna guess no and i'm gonna guess i granted i'm like zero for 10 on are we going to see this character again so take what i say with an entire salt lick do the opposite (laughs) yeah we have closed the book on sukal there's no need for him to come back and i think there's a limited amount of interesting plot points you can do with a stunted man child Mm -hmm. who's more powerful than you can imagine i i think and i think we've done all the things we can do with him and i think we just want him to go and have a happy life and go floating in the river. And I assume that's what he's going to do. He's going to go harvest some kelp and play in the river and live out the rest of his days in peace mm-hmm. and quiet like he deserves. I mean, give the man a break. Let him go and do that. Um, and I don't need him to come back and save the universe again. I um, agree. Yeah. Also, Mike, stepping back one second. Should we have called the episode That Burn Is You? <laughs> only if they said the line in that episode yeah they, they should have you're, said that yeah. that burn is you you're the burn you're that burn guy you're the fire guy yeah i i just love the idea that they're just gonna say oh you're the burn like the burn is not just a it's not an event now it's a human yeah though i will say you know again uh star trek much like lost as we say on down the hatch sort of meets you where you are and 
there were some quotes in this episode again that ended up hitting really hard, I think, given given the events that have specifically occurred the past week. Of course, like the final Roddenberry slate, essentially, of like, hey, mm-hmm. we spend most of our lives trying to reach out and communicate. If we can communicate with just like two people, we are indeed very fortunate. Uh, or even Saru's line, right, about how like outside can be scary and it can be anxiety inducing, but it is ultimately like wonderful and beautiful that ends up ultimately being the thing to to bring him over. It's like it's it's a good reminder of how the scariest risk that you can take, including with a series like Star Trek Discovery, it's a it's a very the toughest thing you can do is take that step off the ledge. But then once you're sort of in free fall, you you get a rush that just is indescribable. Yeah, I I'm here for that. I and I did also clock that line. I liked it very much, and I liked I liked what he was responding to as well. I liked Sukal's episode of. Uh, his his comment of I saw outside once when I was so very small and it was terrifying. Like I think we all feel that right now. Yes, absolutely. And and Saru's like, hey, listen, my spikes might have fallen off, uh, but you know, I, I still understand the, the notion of fear. Uh, and so I understand where you're coming from, but I know if you have a connection with somebody and you take that step together, it makes things a lot easier as well. And it's 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 you know the most comforting Saru has ever been. Too. And I love the fact that whether, you know, purposely or not, this was done. Saru's most delicate work yet was done with the face of Doug Jones. So we like saw how much care he had in his face. Usually we are not privy to that. And so I love the fact that when we saw Saru honestly at his most vulnerable, besides when he thought he was dying last season, is in a moment where everything is literally stripped away from him in that moment. Yeah, it was... I, it kind of it almost justified that choice all on its own. Yeah. Giving him the ability to emote a little bit more than he can in the loaf. So speaking of the captaincy, Jess, you know, we, we've gone a long time without talking about the elephant in the room here. The way this season ends, Michael Burnham, after three seasons of Discovery, finally sitting in the captain's chair. What are your thoughts about it? Why are you giving Michael Burnham a captainship? Michael Burnham <laughs> committed sedition. Michael Burnham made you all go into the future. She is the cause of so many of your problems. She lets her personal life get in the way of the greater good over and over and over. I know she did you all a solid this episode, but there's... She's already been demoted once this season. I don't think the answer to her getting demoted, I don't think you then like jump her two more stations above (laughs) what she was already doing. You know she's going to let you down. That's what Michael Burnham does. And she's great. I love her methods. I love that she gets stuff done. I love her devotion to the people she cares about. That's not captain material. This is going to bite you in the ass. And I bet she doesn't stay captain for the whole rest of the next season. But damn it, Jess, she gets results. And it's very clear she spent her entire Starfleet career figuring out what her catchphrase is going to be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which um, maybe I landed with a bit of a B minus. Maybe I give it overall. Uh, Let's Fly is, is a little, I don't know, seems more like Aviator to me per- per- personally than Starship Captain. It, it really does. And I think that was that was how I everybody else took it in the room too it's also like you can't just go in on your first day as captain and drop your catchphrase in there you have to work up to it i mean does it help though when you like know the group 
Right. Like you're not a complete new hire. You're someone who who was hired internally. So like everyone knows you and they'll have a much warmer response to you. I say that though, remembering that they basically gave a the cold shoulder to Saru when he tried his out. Yeah. And, and that's the I think it would honestly have the opposite effect because it's like if you have a new captain coming like Pike had his already. And he was comfortable with it. And they didn't know like whether he invented it on the way there or if he'd already been using it. It's just kind of part of his character from day one. And it's like, they know Michael Burnham. They know she didn't like, they know this is the first time she's trying that out. And I think that takes away from it a little bit. I think she's got to work up to it. There's got to be a reason that it comes into being. It's not just the, you can't nickname yourself, Mike. So that being said, I do understand what you said, and it, it's it's very great that you pointed out the fact that, like, even as of, like, seven or eight episodes ago, she was demoted. She was punished by the very person, very people that gave her a promotion now. But I think for me, from a meta perspective, I don't know, Jess, I know this was a unique thing about Star Trek Discovery in comparisons of the other fran- series in the franchises, but I have kind of been getting over the rotating captain's chair over the course of three seasons of Star Trek Discovery. At this point, I was just sort of like, all right, let's just make Michael Burnham captain, right? She's the main character. Even if she, you know, even if she wasn't captain, people always look to the captain as the main character of these shows anyway. Might as well do what is the inevitable is going to happen. So, you know, if it, if it, the series had to have at some point Michael Burnham becoming captain. I'd rather it happen earlier so it gives more opportunities for story op- for stories rather than having like another season of Michael, you know, navigating her way through being number one and then not being number one and then, you know, working her way in through unorthodox solutions. This at least is sort of like the inevitable being manifested. And so now it has fast-tracked us into what is going to be a very interesting season four because, yeah, to your point... I don't know how long Michael is going to be captain, but I think that she certainly has her work cut out for her in many, many ways. Yeah, I mean, I understand all the new storytelling opportunities that it raises. And obviously, I love I love that Sonequa Martin-Green is getting to play a star starship captain. That is great. Um, I... I like the idea in principle, but for Michael Burnham, I have to say she went to prison for causing the death of everyone on her ship and starting a war. I feel like that should maybe be a lifetime ban from the captaincy, like thousand years in the future. You still can't be a captain. So it's interesting that you point out because I totally agree. I love like, yes, it shouldn't be only about the optics of it, but like the optics of it is is pretty incredible. Right. I mean, decades after we got. Ben Sisko as the first, uh, you know, POC captain. We've got uh, we've got Janeway as the first female captain in a Star Trek series. Now we have the first woman of color captain in a major capacity. And that's incredible. And to add on top of that. So, Jess, the final scene with everyone looking in their spiffy new gray uniform, signifying that they are going to be here for good, which is great. So Tilly is in science blue. Right. And that that gave me some pause for a second. I'm like, OK, I guess, you know, she did abdicate, you know, leadership to Michael at the end of last episode. I guess this means she is now back in the engine room. But 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 if you look at production photos for that final sequence, you can see in the moment Tilly was wearing a red stripe. 
And oh, I, so they, they did the thing like they do at the Survivor merge where they make your buff a different color in your exactly. confessional. The buffomatic makes its way into Starfleet uniforms. And I know TrekCore.com pointed this out, and they sort of wondered, and I do as well, if they purposely changed the color and obscured it to basically like leave the question open-ended for season four as to will Tilly be first officer or not? Because again, especially if Saru isn't coming back to Discovery, that position once again is going to be open. And I could very, very much see Michael Burnham and Tilly being, you know, captain and number one, which would be very, very fun. I would like that a lot, but at least like, Give Tilly a promotion. Did she get a promotion? Could we tell from the new uniforms? Uh, yeah, and I know that they said that I think rank can be determined by like the pips. I didn't look at the badge. I believe there's there's strips on the badge that determine the rank. I don't know. I didn't take a close enough look to to know if, you know, she got upgraded at least to like lieutenant or something. Hopefully so in the time in between. And she's not, you know, pulling a Harry Kim and his ensign the entire time. Yeah, well, that was the, that was the joke that I saw across the Internet about um, about this this whole um, new universe they're like uh, because somebody pointed out that Sahil got a promotion and he's walking around in headquarters and he's a lieutenant and it's like oh yeah but I bet Harry Kim still isn't still isn't a I'm, lieutenant I'm, and I'm so happy he came back too because that was definitely the one person right even we were talking about it like yeah, did Michael just leave that guy behind after he said he was <laughs> looking for the Federation for years like do the guy a solid he's the one who helped scout your ship and he ends up finally making his way there by the end of the season yeah, I, I liked that we closed the book on him too because it would it would suck if we thought he was still sitting there like um like Huel in the safe house in Breaking yeah. Bad any day now. I mean, maybe it's just the rules that he can only be contracted to appear in episodes that begin with that hope is you. Maybe so. Like may or maybe he signed a he signed a contract. Yeah, he's he's only allowed to appear in that episode, but they made it a two parter and they changed the title so he could be in both. Jess, over under. Four episodes next season that focus on, as was talked about in the finale here, these missions that Disco is going to be on, essentially of like making dilithium deliveries to planets who need them. Are are we Futurama now? I mean, it seemed like we might be for a hot second, and I could very much see, much like Disco usually does, they'll do this for like a third of the season, and then something's going to come along that's going to completely derail the process. Yeah, like the, it's like Emerald Chain Part Two, and you know they're they're delivering. They have precious cargo. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of space pirates out there. Yeah, I mean they are delivering the most wanted mineral in the entire galaxy. I think yeah, they have a big target on their backs. Yeah, I, I would be concerned. Um, I, I I could see. I you could you do have the option there if you want to take it to make it a sort of a procedural where every week they're taking it to a new planet and giving it to new people and kind of becoming a sort of a monster of the week situation where you you deliver your dilithium and then you help them the dilithium helps them to get rid of a a menace of some sort and everybody fights the menace together um, they had certainly had enough filler episodes in the other Star Treks where this was the case. But as mm-hmm. you note, Mike, we we don't really tell the story like that anymore because we don't have 26 episodes to fiddle around with. So I think we might get them delivering the dilithium a couple of times, but I don't think it'll ever be central to the story. I think yeah. we we get we get them thinking that is the point, but they very quickly dispense with it because something bigger is coming down the pike. Not down the Captain Pike, but down the Pike Pike. 
Yeah, I mean, I would love what you were describing, though, because some of my favorite episodes of this season were exploring so many of these like disparate environments, whether it was the Trill homeworld or going back to Earth or going to Quajon. Like, you have an entire galaxy to discover in a brand new time period. I actually wouldn't be mad. I know that some people are like, let's, you know, let's let's sort of go to serialization and do stuff that the that the the franchise has never done before. But I wouldn't be mad at exploring this galaxy a little and like spending an episode on a nice planet like we did back in episode two or just like going to these various environments and then maybe having small elements that will tie into this overall narrative, at least for a little bit, because I feel like, you know, as we start to segue into what we think about this season, this season more than the first two really did seem to have some of those like, quote unquote, one off esque episodes where they tie into the plot a little bit, but they're more had more propensity to stop down and do random stuff than the previous two seasons. And I thought the season was that the much better for it. Yeah, I like it when they do that. What I would really love is sort of a situation like maybe we had in the first half of season two where you are going to different places and doing, you know, and doing your missions. And it's like one mission per episode, but each mission furthers the story and brings you closer to the, to the unifying factor of the season, which you may not even know at first. I would love it if we didn't know yeah. in the first couple of episodes that these things tie together and then finding out later how they tie together is very fun or even how season two short treks. Uh, you thought, oh, that's a fun little self-contained story. And then it's like, no, they all factor into what we're doing here. Yeah. Well, so even when it comes to whether it's external forces through the Emerald Chain or whatever might be coming, there's going to be some internal strife here, Jess, because I would say that Michael Burnham probably has a near universal approval rating on the Disco crew. Even I can think of one stuff- person who does not approve. And that's the thing that we saw very palpably is I think yeah. it's very obvious that the biggest interpersonal drama of season four, at least initially, is going to be, oh, we got to get Michael Burnham and Stamets to get along again. Yeah. I mean, are we going to have to, like, trap him into Jeffrey's tube until they sort their differences out? Is, I mean, this might, be like episode? The, this might be season seven of Parks and Rec, right? This might be like, uh, oh, my God, they have irreconcilable differences. Let's, you know, have them hash everything out. I mean, to be fair... It helped Michael's case that after Stamets tried to go to Vance to essentially tattle on her, Vance is like, hey, she did the right thing. Let's get you on a transport vehicle. Like, I think Stamets is maybe I don't know if he's now mad at Michael as much as he is like now mad at the world for what was done to him. Yeah, I I think I think he understands that it was the only solution. He's just mad because it's not what he wanted. And boy, that's a 2021 mood as well. Yeah, and it's a weird place to end the character, who, mm-hmm. like we said, like I think started the season, especially with the Adira stuff, like at an incredibly mature, friendly perspective that we definitely did not get from Paul Stamets in the first season that we saw him. And now we have sort of come full circle in this inner Osira way of like now he sort of is back to kind of a grumpus. And I think it'll get better as the season goes along, especially now that his family is back. But yeah, it was a weird sort of question mark to leave at the end when, you know, everyone was seemingly smiling at Michael with the exception of Stamets, who was more like, this is fine, I guess. Yeah. Is there a chance, Mike, we could get dark Stamets next next season? Like, could he be tempted away from the path of righteousness by his anger? Mm, or is that too I'd, Star Warsy? 
That's a little too Star Warsy. Not to mention the fact that, like, you know, unlike Anakin Skywalker, he does have a family at this point. And so I wonder if it's just, you know, Colbert talking some sense to him at a certain point, being like, what the hell are you doing? Stop being mad at Michael Burnham. She did what was right. Just, you know, get to work here. I wonder if maybe he'll just more so take out his resentment on someone like Book, as example, who is now usurping his job. Yeah, there's there's that as well. I mean, he's got a he's going to have a crisis like he's going to have a crisis as big as Detmer's crisis this year. Uh, he's going to, you know, they don't need him as much as they used to. And he the one time they did need him, he got kicked off the ship so that they couldn't use him. I I could see like he's going to need the support of his family to keep him on the straight and narrow. Yeah, well, that being said, though. He does have something immediate to work for, right? Like, if he is indeed out of a job, now he can work firsthand on this idea of, okay, let's somehow figure out a way to build our family out and make Grey corporeal again. So maybe that'll be actually be Stamets' big storyline for the season, is now he gets to sort of channel his frustration towards Starfleet and Michael and Book, and instead focus on, like, his family life, right? His his personal matters instead. Well, that's a good point, Mike. That gives him... If he doesn't have to be the spore guy anymore, he has the opportunity to have a new project, and that gives him the opportunity for growth. Yeah. Well, plus, you know, uh, I'm assuming he's going to have to yuck it up a bit with Jet Reno as well. So, you know what? The more time he spends out of the spore cage, the better. Yeah, that's true. Like, maybe maybe Reno will help him. You know, she's very good at coming up with unorthodox solutions. So, I think, like, the power duo of Stamets and Reno working to solve this problem that could be very compelling and you know bring aurelio in there too he's got yeah. nothing better to do that's an interesting point as well is because they really had a bonding moment right and so i what if there is some sort of like starfleet brain trust that forms maybe samus now works with like a vulcan now right because now that they're sort of being brought back under the federation and it's more so stamets trying to like figure out these scientific achievements rather than feeling like he has to stay aboard plus Colber has stuff to do all day. He may or may not be the chief medical doctor on board, so he has to work towards stuff. Adira seems to be keeping themselves busy, so Stamus needs needs a hobby, and maybe this hobby is going to be getting his son to come back from the dead. Although, Mike, it's kind of creepy if if Grey is their son and Adira is also their child. Aren't Grey and Adira kind of romantically involved? Like, wouldn't we more accurately call Grey, like, the son-in-law I was just thinking, yeah, maybe son-in-law is is a better way. Though I guess, you know, Adira is technically, you know, their child, but Adira also technically contains the identity of Grey, too. So, like, is Senatol their child as well? Yeah, that's, I don't know, Mike. This This is a thorny conundrum. And speaking of Adira and thorny conundra, I wonder if you heard about the kerfuffle on Memory Alpha this week. Oh, I heard about this, right? I actually just heard about this. Where Memory Alpha just, like, what, wiped all instances of gender on Adira's page to not, like, confuse the whole non-binary issue? Yeah. And, um, in fact, Anthony Rapp and Wilson Cruz got involved. (gasps) And Space Dads went to work defending their child. I mean, Um, they should. It feels like I understand the thorns with which you have to wade through to, to... Undrote the difficult topic when it comes to gender identity, but it's called gender identity for a reason, right? This is who a person associates themselves as to so to essentially 
go to literal erasure of that, it's like it's not, you know, intentionally aggressive, but it certainly is aggressive. Yeah. And it's also. I feel like this is something that probably should have come up at another point in the past in the past like five decades of Star Trek because there are many alien races and they they aren't all adhering to the gender binary. So I liked the solution that maybe nobody has their gender listed and you can just infer from their pronouns in the article itself like what they what their identity is going to be. Um but you know like bullions don't bullions have four genders? Yeah something um, like that, right? So like, you know Star Trek is all about opening your mind to what can exist out there in the universe. If if they have to find the way to do this, I I suppose. But yeah, not a not a fantastic way to start the off season there, Memory Alpha. No, no. But I I really loved that it was like fiction blurring into real life with space dads jumping up to correct the problem. Yeah, and that and that also shows like no matter what you say about Star Trek Discovery, just like how dedicated to the franchise this entire crew is. You know, compare that to some people who are just like, yeah, I was on Star Trek. It was fun, but whatever. Like, this is a group of people that are wholly devoted to the cause of like, wow, it's really cool that I get to be on Star Trek. And wow, it's really cool that I get to be on such a big show, like near the end of 2010s, beginning of 2020s, when there are so many important political issues out there that are being talked about on the show, especially people like Wilson Cruz and Anthony Rapp, who have been a fantastic representative of the show when it comes to connecting it to these modern day issues. And so I, I think it speaks to like the general enthusiasm and energy for the cast that, that comes from both being on the show and being able to like represent these values in a modern day structure. Yeah, I, and I love this. This feels so appropriate for Star Trek, um, which has always been on the forefront of uh, of breaking down these barriers and of helping to make things um, make people more included and make everything more inclusive as a rule. So I I like that we're still finding new places where we can accomplish that because there is a long way to go. And I also think that this season in particular and discovery in general has been something that we have needed in the current climate really badly. And even when they're not responding directly to current events, they manage to do it anyway. It's like you said, Mike, they meet you where you're at. So that being said, I think we can just give a consensus across the board for this podcast. Best season of disco bar none, correct? Oh, correct. 100%. It just keeps getting better. Yeah, and so I think, you know, obviously there is stuff to quibble with. As Jess said, I'm not a giant fan of the way it ended in terms of the mystery of the burn. Again, I think thematically it may have worked better than it actually played out, considering how maybe rote the subject is. I think in retrospect, I am still a little, I don't know, disappointed, I think, by just how out of nowhere the Terra Firma two-parter was. Again, I understand the utility of it to get... Michelle Yeoh off the show, and it was fun to take a dip into the Mirror Universe for a certain portion of time. But then I think when you look back at it, like I said before, when you only have 13 hours of the show and you're like, yeah, we're going to dedicate two to essentially writing a character off that really has nothing to do with the main plot of Discovery, it felt a little out of nowhere. But for the most part, I mean, I really, really enjoyed a lot of this season. I think they made incredible choice now in retrospect going so far into the future now they are not 
hobbled with having to stick to canon necessarily. They can create brand new things through canon, like Navarre, for example, and they were able to eschew certain characters, you know, saying maybe our ensemble is getting a bit too big. That being said, they did bring on more new characters, but I actually really like the new characters. I've been beating the book drum since the very beginning. I really like the character. I love the chemistry that he and Michael have. We just talked about how important of a character Adira and subsequently Grey are to the franchise as a whole. So I think the show is in a really good spot. Does it have the tendency to sometimes make decisions we don't want and get a little tropey? Yes, but I do feel like the number of times they do that were significantly less this season than they were the previous two seasons. And that to me shows this is a Star Trek series, Jess, because the first two seasons are a little rocky. And starting with the third season, it looks like it really found its legs. Are, are you saying they grew the beard? I think that, well, listen, uh, much like Benjamin Sisko ascends from commander to captain, so does Michael Burnham. So I think that means we're hopefully in for some good stuff as well. Yep. I, I don't know. I don't know what uh, Sonequa Martin-Green's capacity is to grow a beard, but it sure feels like that's the next step in the world of Star Trek. Yeah, exactly. Though I, I remember when Benjamin Sisko, you know, ends up getting his promotion. That's sort of is when all hell breaks loose, right? When they find out that a changeling is among them. So maybe similar things might happen here. Maybe becoming captain might be the worst thing for these characters. I mean, the last time they put a new person in charge, you saw what happened, Mike. I think it's like a rite of passage at this point. Mm-hmm, exactly. So what about you? What are your thoughts about season three, especially now that we look back on all 13 episodes? Well, Mike, I think I, I agree with you. We don't need a backdoor pilot in the middle of all of this. And I felt like I why even bring Giorgio at all? I She certainly had some good lines, but I don't know what exactly we accomplished other than being able to tell the viewers that she's going to be in her own show. I didn't love that very much. Um, I thought book was a great character that I would have loved. I would have loved for him to be more of a non-human other than like the few times we saw it, because otherwise he was just a regular. Right. Yeah. The, the fact that he looks so humanoid, I know that's, that's extra work to do, but Again, when you when we live in a world where visual effects are so prolific, it's it's nice to have people stick out in that regard because again, it tells us about the wide tapestry that the future can provide. Yeah, and he also kind of lost the thread a little bit there. I feel like he had a he had a clear goal when we met him, and he's strayed pretty far from that. And it doesn't seem like we know what he wants anymore. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I do think after his episode, after the sanctuary where they went to Quajon. Then he was just sort of like, okay, I want to work. And they're like, great, you can work, but we have to disappear for two episodes. And then we have our three-part finale. So he's he sort of has had like a weird transitional period in the second half of season three. Yeah, I think we need to give him more of a journey next um, next season. I'm glad he didn't die, though, because I was pretty yeah. sure he was going to die. Um Especially when they put him in the Princess Bride machine. I was like, oh, no, this guy's toast. But Yeah, exactly. But you know what? Michael was able to, to shoot her way out of that. And he was able to do some pretty badass stuff after being mostly dead for some time. Yeah, I, I was I was waiting for somebody to pull out that Holocaust cloak, but I, I guess they didn't really need it. Yeah, not necessarily, though. I would, yeah, I guess that would sort of be like a cloaking device, right? Yeah. Yeah, I guess I guess it is um, sort of. And they certainly set a lot of things on fire. Um, mm hmm. And all we do is talk about burning things this season. Uh, I I didn't love, I don't think they stuck the landing, but I enjoyed the journey. 
Mm. Uh, I do think Adira is a little bit too much of a uh, Mary Sue slash Wesley Crusher. I want Adira to screw up on something next season. Mm -hmm. I want them to be fallible. I want, I, I feel like they're just there to, a lot of times their character comes off as wish fulfillment for teenage viewers. Like I want to be the person in the room who knows more than the adults and who has a cool sense of style. And I want the coolest characters on the ship to be my dad's. And I, I just need, I need Adira to be responsible for something going wrong. Mm. That, that would be my, on my wish list for next season. Interesting. Yeah. I guess if I, if we're coming up with a wish list here, I would love to see, we saw it a little bit again in episode four. I would love to see Colbert take charge more. Again, it's still nebulous as to like what power he has on the ship. But like in the, even in that three part away mission, like he had that whole thing with Paul, right? Where he's like, I need to be there. I need to help, you know, a fellow lost soul. He said like three sentences to Sakal total before they ended up leaving. So I would have, I, I, maybe it's because he, he became my favorite character. I would love to see more of that. I thought this was a really fun Tilly season. Granted, mm-hmm. it is, much less of a weird departure than last season where she was like, hey, she sees a specter of her former classmate and then gets captured by the mycelial network. But I'm very excited to see, yes, she's no longer in the captain's chair, but like, what does a post-Osira Tilly look like? I really like the arc of Saru as well. Again, as I spoke before about, he finally gets what he wants in the captain's chair, but what does it sort of mean? And now that he gets it, what exactly is fulfillment for him? I think that's a really cool arc as well. So, you know, if I'm at the end of the season here, really excited for the vast majority of these characters places going into season four, that's considered a success in my book. Like you said, maybe the finale itself was not necessarily the most magnetic piece of the season, but I will say overall, it's a big old hunk of magnet. Yeah, I'll, and not like the kind of magnet you put next to your laptop and things go bad. It's like a good magnet. Yeah, exactly. Like nobody's yelling, yeah, magnets, bitch, uh, at this. Right. this or, I mean, maybe they are just more so in ecstasy. So that being said, Jess, I mean, I cannot believe that here we are. We are now on the tail end, 23 straight weeks of Star Trek to watch and sort of none in sight. There's there's filming going on. But realistically, I think it's going to be a hot minute before we get to talk about new Star Trek again. Yeah, Mike, I think the earliest we could reasonably expect to see any Star Trek whatsoever has to be this summer. Am I right? Yeah. So, I mean, let's let's play a little bit of a game here, Jess. So get get your calendars out, people. So we have three renewed Star Trek shows that are coming back. Right. We have Discovery Season 4. We have Picard Season 2. And we have Lower Decks Season 2. Jess, can you throw out to me some predictions as to when these three series will come back? And as a bonus, uh, will a show like Prodigy, for example, or another one of these random new series, will any of them end up premiering in the year 2021? Okay, Mike. Well, I think if we're going to see any of the existing franchises um, come back in 2021, I would say Lower Decks is the cheapest to make. You don't mm-hmm. even all have to be in the same room to make it. Um, I think they could churn out another season of Lower Decks fairly easily and drop that on us in the summer. I do not think we get any other new Star Trek until 2022. However, I don't know how much of Prodigy was in the can already. Right. So we may get some of that. 
Um, I think we also, I think 2022 is going to be Star Trek stacked. I would guess maybe we don't get any Yadis whatsoever. I think maybe early 2021, we might get, um, we might get a Picard season two followed by the premiere of either the Pike series or the Giorgio series, um, followed by more disco. And I would imagine they stick more lower decks in there wherever it fits. Yeah. So I think I'm going to put it right now here. I think lower deck season two, give me July 1st, 2021 uh, for another 10 episodes. I actually think so. Alex Kurtzman had said, or I think it was posted on Reddit back in the summer that Prodigy was going to air at some point in 2021 because that's another animated series. So right. I, I would not be surprised if that is fall 2021. I will say, let me look at the calendar here. I'm going to say October 14th, 2021 <laughs> will, be, will be the premiere of Star Trek Prodigy, which will return Captain Janeway back to our screens. And then I'm actually going to say, you know what? I think Star Trek Discovery comes back December 2nd. 2021 i believe to start disco's plan is to film i think through like may or june i think six month turnaround time to at least for that at least that initial batch of episodes when it comes to post-production i think could definitively be possible and so considering what they did here with like a little bit of bleed over into the new year i would not be surprised just if we had another late year premiere for star trek discovery that is going to take us into early 2022 when to your point Maybe we string uh, another a Picard season two or like a Strange New Worlds or Section 31 season one on the end of it as well to make another 24 weeks of Trek. I, I would love it, Mike. I, I think it would be it would be a great thing to have. I just don't know. I, I think we're in the era where you make plans and the prophets laugh. Mm hmm. <laughs> So I, I I think we get Prodigy. I think we get Lower Decks. I don't think we get a live action Trek this year. So I, sorry, speaking of the prophets, have we not consulted the Orb yet to determine what exactly the future is going to be? Yeah, I I, I asked the Orb of TV scheduling, and um, it it told me ask again later. Results hazy. Uh, so they didn't say like, oh, the lease is here. We must tell her exactly when all the Star Trek series are coming back to keep ourselves employed. Yeah, uh, when you when you go it, when I go into the wormhole to talk to the prophets, they all manifest as characters from TV series that I've covered. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think that's that's what it's going to be like for me, right? It's not people necessarily in my life. It's like everyone that I talk about for hours at a time every week. Yeah, it's going to be like you're going to get a couple of Starfleet captains. You're going to get Jeff Probst. You're going to get um, you're going to get everybody from Lost. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's going to be a, a wide variety of characters, but oh man, I'm going to go touch that orb now. I'm just excited to go visit with my friends now because Jess, again, you know, like you said, it might be a long, long time before we come back to Discovery specifically and at least a couple of seasons calendar wise before we get any Star Trek in general. Yeah. But, you know, Mike, one treat you're going to have is when you when you do touch the orb and you visit with the prophets, you get both Amazing Race Phil Kogan and Tough as Nails Phil Kogan. Oh, that's good. One can sort of ask me awkward questions while the other one can teach me New Zealand slang. Yeah, it, it's a it's a trip, Mike. I, I'll tell you. But yeah, it's, it is a little bittersweet now. Um, and you know what I, I realized, Mike? I covered eight different TV series last year. Holy which... crap. Well, that's that's the thing as well, is at least what I told a lot of people, you know, in the fall, 
uh, was the people were like, oh, you know, this must be weird for you. I'm like, surprisingly, no, this might be some of the busiest I've ever been working because either series are coming out of the can that were filmed before the pandemic or some series were like somehow filmed during the pandemic and we're still running business as usual. So I think only now are we starting to experience really the slowdown from the pandemic as opposed to last year, somehow, despite everything going on, was still a bustling year for television. Yeah. And I think it's, it's all this sort of cumulative effect. Like it's, it's sort of like supply chain delays, like in Late spring, I was trying to find Coke Zero, and the people in the supermarket said, buy it now because they're having issues now, and in two months, you won't be able to find it. And so Mm -hmm. I filled the garage with it and got through the summer, and then by that point, they'd sorted it out again. Right, exactly. So, I mean, listen, we are certainly not complaining. It is certainly filling our bellies and hopefully your bellies as well on post recaps. And I also know, Jess, that even though you and I are beaming off the Star Trek podcast for who knows how long, I know you and I still have plenty of stuff to talk about in the meantime. What do you have going on for the next little bit when it comes to both scripted and reality television? Uh, well, Mike, I, I have been extremely busy. Uh, the great Rob Sestrino and I are talking about The Stand on CBS All Access. Man, I'm getting my $5.99 a month worth. I was going to say, you. like, you are the number one CBS All Access shell here on Post Show Recaps. My God, you know what? After, after we finish The Stand, I might just go ahead and kick off a good fight rewatch because I mean, what else am I going to watch? Uh, so that has been really fun. We didn't know if we were going to do the whole series, but it has really taken off and, we have a great responsive audience that are very excited to hear from us. And then this week, I have some extra stand coverage. Um, the second half of our podcast this week is going to be me chatting with um, award-winning author Meg Elison, who writes post-apocalyptic fiction. Mm. And she is heavily influenced by the stand. And she told me she has read the book at least 10 times. Oh, my God. And that's a big book. Yeah, you know, Mike, it is really not often that I get to talk to someone who is a bigger geek about the thing I'm talking about than I am. <laughs> and I got it there and it was so rewarding. It was such a treat. So that interview is going to be dropping in your feeds about the same time that this podcast is. So it's probably already up for those of you listening. Um, and then, Mike, you and I have Tough as Nails season two in a couple yeah. of weeks. Yeah. That's- so we, I mean, right now, uh, a month from the day this is coming out, Tough as Nails is going to be out. So it's only been a short amount of time since we talked to reality TV, but we're going to get the band back together. And you, me, and Rob Cetrino are going to be covering that for 10 weeks. The cast just got released. They look like a real interesting group. And it's always, it's, it was the surprise. You know, the surprise hit show last year, and we had a very fun time getting to talk about it, including some other insider coverage. So if you're into something to look at from a CBS perspective for this winter season, check out Tough as Nails. It is like super wholesome. It's extremely well made, and we have a great time getting to talk about it on Rob Has a Podcast every week. Yeah, we sure do. And Mike, are you allowed to talk about the thing that you're about to drop? Yeah, um, so I, I technically revealed this on the Lost podcast as well. So we might as well like let the entire cat out of the bag here. So obviously, speaking of the Lost podcast, Josh Wigler and I are, of course, going down the hatch. We are taking a bit of a yachtis as well. Uh, we finished off the megalith that was season three. And now we're going to spend two weeks covering the missing pieces, which for those of you that don't know, were 13 webisodes 
that aired in the end of 2007 and beginning of 2008 in lieu of the writer's strike before the delayed release of season four, which are all technically canonical and sort of like fill in some gaps. It's almost like uh, the bridge crew tales of Lost. So Josh and I are going to break down those and maybe some other Lost based stuff as we have a couple of weeks before we get into season four proper. But I'm very, very excited for what's to come because I'm staying in space here, Jess, in a manner of speaking. Mm-hmm. I, on on January 24th, I am launching a new podcast here on Post Show Recaps called The Bloom Files. And the name sort of speaks for itself. So I'm getting together with my lovely wife, Angela Bloom, who she and I have had a very fun time on the Post Show Recaps patron theater feed uh talking with josh and emily about all things lord of the rings we're gonna be talking two towers this week just rewatch that but angela is a big big fan of the x-files one of her favorite tv series of all time i have not seen an episode and this is something that she has always wanted to get me into and i thought why not record that process by putting a mic in front of our faces as we talk through our experiences so Angela has called together a short list of episodes for me to watch of the X-Files seminal episodes. And so each week on the Bloom Files, essentially, we're going to watch an episode that I have never seen before and she has seen many, many times before. We talk through it from the dual perspective of someone who has seen it many times and is now coming through it from an angle of 2020 uh, or 2021 versus someone who has no idea what's going on and is trying to blindly feel in the dark for whatever this show is. We've already banked a few episodes and it has been a very, very fun time. So be sure to check that out if you are into it. It is a relatively spoiler-free podcast. We we remain vague about future events. So whether you are in the same boat or ship as me, someone who has never seen the show before, feel free to check it out. Or if you're a devout expert, feel free to check it out as well. Hopefully we cover all our bases. But if you're looking for some more space-based content in post-show recaps in the absence of a Star Trek Here you go. The Bloom Files coming to your feed, taking actually this podcast spot on Sundays, starting just two weeks from now on January 24th. That sounds like a lot of fun, Mike. I've got to be honest. I've seen maybe two and a half episodes of The X-Files, so this may be something that I will want to watch along with as well. Yeah, I mean, again, we sort of are cherry picking episodes. What we have seen so far has been very fun, Uh, actually surprisingly well done as well. I've only seen like three episodes from season one and from season one, things are like relatively solid, which makes me very excited for what's to come. So I'm really excited to go on this journey. I hope I have many, many people, yourself, Jess included, going on this ride with me and Angela for the next many, many months of this year. Yeah, and and the underreported story, Mike, is that Angela is an absolute delight to podcast with, and I know this mm-hmm. almost as well as you do, to yeah. be honest, because she's filled in for you on this very podcast multiple occasions, and I love her take on everything. So you guys are going to have fun. I think that's going to be fabulous. And then we have so much going on in post-show recaps. Oh, my goodness. It's really heating up. We have... We have so many great shows that we're covering. Of course, the aforementioned Down the Hatch is still going strong. We have Ang in there, which is our coverage of um, Avatar The Last Airbender, which, no, that's not currently on. They are doing a rewatch, and they've just kicked off season two and are having a very fun time. I think that is a really, there's a really great community of fans that has congregated around that. Uh, We are also covering... In the absence of any new Star Wars content, we are covering, we're doing a rewatch of 
all things Star Wars. Josh Wiggler is doing that. And once a month, he'll be taking on a different aspect of the Star Wars universe. This month, of course, is The Phantom Menace, which he and Rob Sesternino will be recapping very, very soon. And then we also have Everything is Super, which is Kevin Mahadeo and Josh Wiggler watching um, all things in the Marvel universe. And for the next few weeks, they're going to be recapping WandaVision. Mm-hmm. which is the new show dropping on Disney Plus. Which is essentially, I believe, like an MCO, MCU series that takes place in a very Sukal-like environment where everything is not as it seems. So I'm very excited for Doug Jones to make his appearance, I'm assuming, to help break everything down. Yeah, with or without his loaf. Perhaps. Yep. And then there's one more podcast I want to call your attention to that dropped today, which I am so delighted that Brooklyn Zed is returning to the airwaves. Uh, They have joined Josh to recap Final Fantasy VII, which Mm. Zed has never played. And so Zed has gone through this game for the first time and explored all the different storylines and characters. And Josh, who is mildly obsessed with the final fantasy universe and this game in particular mildly is is putting it mildly jess i you know josh is obsessed with so many things but this is definitely looms large in his sphere um he has graciously offered to guide zed through their first final fantasy and it is a hoot and a half you guys are really going to enjoy it but mike we're not done yet because i think it is very much worth pointing out that there is even more content available for those of you who decide to become a patron of post-show recaps. And we are talking at least three podcasts dropping every week that are entirely extra new content, including Mm -hmm. movie rewatches. We have, um, we're about to embark on a, on a community podcast, which we've been We've been dipping our toes in the waters for a very long time. Jess Sterling spearheads that, and Josh joins her for that as well. Josh talks about what he's watching every week. There is a newsletter that some genius crafts with loving care. And then patrons at the $10 level get access to our Discord, and the Discord is really the unsung hero of post show recaps oh, this year completely to the point where like there's already inside jokes that have been built after three months of existence because josh even separate from podcasts likes to do uh film watches whether they be films like the phantom menace that he's going to be covering on a podcast or just random things like nicholas cage's next and those live watching experiences are truly fantastic if you can catch them and the discourse on the discord is second to none but you can only be a part of it if you are a patron at the $10 level. So if you have the means to do so, we're still at the beginning of the month. You can you know, get your money's worth for the month at postshowrecaps.com slash Patreon. I guarantee uh, you are not going to you're, you're not going to regret your choice. It has been such a great time to bond with so many geeks about so many things, television, movies, Coco and everything in between. And that being said, I also want to thank those both in the Discord, in Twitter, and otherwise for, you know, talking to us throughout the entire season. We mentioned a couple of names before, but I I really love our sort of like small intrepid crew of people talking about Discovery. I know that obviously another space-based show I think took up much more of uh, of the social media breath space this past fall, but we had a really great time covering Disco here, and I hope you all had a great time getting to listen to us cover Disco and talk through everything as we tried to piece together exactly what this season was. It was an extremely enjoyable experience, especially with you, Jess, and I can't wait to see what's to come in however many months pass. 
Yeah, Mike, whenever whenever we're back on the air, we will certainly be here and we will be ready and waiting to cover whatever the Star Trek universe decides to throw at us. But um Mike, I would love I love would love to extend my thanks to you as well for joining me on this journey. Um I have I have a little jar of signature gelato that I'd like to present to you um ceremonially uh because I my gratitude to you exceeds the span of the universe here. Ooh. Um, it tastes delicious, I'm assuming. Yeah, I mean, it's... I I don't think you want to question too hard what it's made out of. Oh, boy, um, yeah. I was going to say, I don't know how chocolatey that thing is. Yikes. Uh, <laughs> but... You know, we, we've had, we've had a, a hell of a time covering all things Star Trek this year. And I'm going to be really excited for whatever they have next, whenever they bring it to us. So whenever that is, we will be back here in the podcast feed entertaining you with our commentary and recaps. But until then, live long and prosper, friends. We'll see you when we see you. Let's fly. <laughs>